KGUM AM and Agatnya Guam, you got locked into the Data Hub with Tyrone Titano, only on Guam's hottest talk, News Talk, K57. Welcome to the Data Hub. I'm Tyrone Tyson. I'm Tyrone Tyson. Um, tonight, uh, we have uh, two guests who will be um, calling in. Um, as I mentioned in previous programs, uh, due to the um, COVID-19 restrictions, we're not allowing any uh, in-studio guests, uh, per se, unless they wear a mask. And just for the convenience of everybody, I'm here in the studio uh, by myself uh, with a sock over my mic. So once again, it's me and my sock. But we'll have two guests who will be calling in. Um, uh, after the uh, 7 o'clock news, uh, Dr. Austin Shelton for the UOG Center for Island Sustainability will be calling in about uh, their uh, recently completed um, online a st- sustainability conference. They were uh, scheduled to do one, uh, an actual physical conference uh, in May, but of course, um, the, given the COVID-19 restrictions at that time, that wasn't possible. So uh, very innovatively, um, Austin Shelton and his team uh, uh, pivoted and created an uh, online virtual conference uh, held every Friday beginning um, the first week of May and gone on for seven weeks. And their last final seventh uh, uh, virtual uh, episode of their, uh, of their conference ended um, uh, last Friday. And so he'll be uh, with us after uh, the 7 o'clock news to review what has been uh, discussed and came out of that uh, extensive um, uh, sustainability conference and uh, what's the uh, uh, vital information that... Um, uh, it, we can be imparted to our community and things we can learn from and can build upon in order to build the uh, sustainable community uh, that we, uh, we all want to see. Um, in other Bureau of Statistics news, uh, the, um, uh, one of the uh, uh, tasks that we had in dealing with the COVID-19 crisis was uh, uh, to seek certain uh, federal grants, including a $2.9 million federal grant to help law enforcement and first responders. And part of that um, of... Um, of that uh, funding was also uh, in, uh, in face masks and sanitation supplies to help uh, our, our first responders here. And they've already been uh, picked up by DOI, DOC, and uh, last week, uh, the Guam Police Department. Uh, also, uh, one of the items being purchased is a, uh, our four ambulances, and the first of which we understand is on island and is being detailed as a Guam Fire Department on it. And, We'll keep you updated. The rest will, will come in. Um, but our first guest for this block uh, is Edwin Rages from the Guam Coastal Management Program here. And we're going to discuss um, what the ongoing work uh, between the Governor of Guam and principally the Army Corps of Engineers to deal with the Aganya River floodplain. Now, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, there is um, one of the restrictions on the deferral development of Aganya is a, a federal floodplain map, which... Uh, 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 if you fall within that floodplain, you're required to do either you're prohibited from doing any construction or you have to do rather expensive mitigation errors. And, uh, and this has been a, um, a major roadblock to really harnessing the full economic potential of Aganya. And joining us is Edwin. Hi, Edwin. You're already on the line? Hi, Tyrone. Okay. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for having me here so you can uh, convey to the uh, public where we stand on uh, the uh, Army Corps engineers' work. Uh, to do uh, a new technical assessment of the Aganya River, and, and hopefully it will lead to uh, 
reforms and maybe even elimination of the floodplain bank. I was explaining to her listeners at the time uh, that it's a, it's a major, it's always been considered a major um, impediment to fully harnessing the economic potential of Agania. Um, and, um, and, and particularly as the floodplain map, which kind of w- snakes its way through Agania in kind of strange ways. For example, the, uh, uh, the museum, I believe, is in the floodplain, but uh, the cathedral is not, or something, or something like that. Um, perhaps for our listeners, um, uh, Edwin, you could probably explain what is, uh, is driving the, uh, the uh, uh, current uh, floodplain or the whole idea behind it. And why it's necessary? Why why this sort yeah, of discernment uh, is yeah, necessary? I mean, those are definitely valid points in terms of like what are some of the um, constraints that are um, really getting in the way of Agania being able to uh, realize itself as a, a, a vital, um, vibrant capital city for Guam. And definitely, the flood zone is one of those barriers. So if you're in a flood zone, you have to be able to demonstrate to FEMA that you are flood proof. And so some of those um, different technologies or approaches. To floodproof your home really um, involves kind of raising it up above the floodplain, above uh, what the required freeboard is. And so when you start raising structures up, you, of course, the cost, there is cost um, associated with that. It's, um, you know, pretty uh, standard that a one-story home is going to be cheaper than a two-story home. Um, so you'll also, um, you know, of course, in addition to the cost, then you start to uh, construct a city that will lose some of its free-flowing nature. And so you mentioned the cathedrals in not in the flood zone, but the plaza, um, the museum is. Uh, so, you know, when you're looking at long-term community planning, you have these different conditions that doesn't allow for, you know, uniformity, conformity, and this free-flowing nature that we want a city to be able to uh, create. Uh, so that way its users will able to maximize the use of this space in, in a city format. Uh, so certainly the flood zone prohibits that because it doesn't um, uh, provide the desirable conditions for which people can develop. So the flood zone of the floodplain is, is um, correct me if I'm wrong, Edwin, but it's based on a study by the Army Corps engineers or an assessment that dates was done in the 70s, sometime 40 years ago, right? So, uh, do I have the dates right? It's about 40 years ago? Uh, yes, a little bit. It's, uh, it's, uh, so the, the project in Hagatia was authorized in 1986 to um, construct the um, flood mitigation that would then um, reduce the floodplain in the city. But the, the flood zone itself, it's, it's um, regulated by FEMA, and so they are the ones to certify and uh, regulate the, flood, the different flood zones and, um, within you know, all, of the, all, all of the United States. But basically the current floodplain or flood zone is on the basis of a 40-year-old study. And um, if I recall, a lot of it is based on this concept of a 100-year event. Um, perhaps you could explain that to listeners, what that means. Um, so the technical aspects of the, you know, the flood, um, you know, the, the flood ratings, whether they're a 50-year event or a 100-year event, I'm probably not the best person to, uh, you know, to describe what those means. But there really are levels of um, you know, rate events that, um, where you can then design your standards to make sure that, you know, your place don't get flooded um, when when those events happen. So, for example, a 50-year event, or I forgot what that means for Guam, but I think it's on the average of I think like four to eight inches of rain in an hour. Mm-hmm. And so when you get those 
um, levels of rain. And don't quote me because I'm not again, I'm not an expert, but just right. an understanding of what that uh, what that means in terms of you know how much is rain is falling within the hour. Um, so those levels then would um, guide you know how high uh, you have to build or how big your ponding basins are going to be. Right. Well, I, I bring this up because, um, um, and, and kind of make the the point, this is something that has confronted policymakers, not just this administration, uh, but many in, administrations since um, the establishment of the flood zone in the, in the 70s. And um, this is the uh, second administration in which I've been privileged to be a part of. Uh, the last administration I was part of was the Guterres Badalia administration in the 90s. And I recall even then, this was the whole issue of the floodplain was consuming the interests of the, uh, the then director of public works. Um, and, and part of this, which sort of um, uh, has, has been sort of frustrating, at least for the local community, is, is that the whole idea of the Ghana River flooding. Now, uh, there does not appear to be a lot of empirical evidence in the post-war period of the Ghana River actually substantially flooding. There is a flooding in Ghana due to inadequacies in the storm drainage system or storm surges from the ocean, like during typhoons, for example. And so for that, you get some, often get uh, flooding in Aganya. Uh, but from the river itself, uh, not so much. As a matter of fact, um, I remember um, uh, at the, um, the press conference we had on this with the Army Corps Engineers way back in March, uh, we, um, uh, Governor Lingo was remarking that her father could not recall uh, the Aganya River flooding. Uh, I know that my late parents could not recall this as well. And the uh, Director of Public Works, Vince Arello, is, is noting that his father, late father could not recall it flooding as well. So it's been kind of um, um, uh, a sort of a frustration that we have this floodplain imposed, um, uh, given that sort of anecdotal um, uh, evidence here. But of course, what drives this and what should drive this is an actual technical study, which is what the Army Corps Engineers has embarked upon. Um, uh, thanks in, in great deal, and well, to a large part to the leadership of Governor Leon Guerrero, who has made uh, flooding issues, and including the Gander River issue, like one of her priorities, uh, even from the first meetings within weeks of her taking office with uh, visiting Army Corps of Engineers um, officials, and in her own meetings with the uh, uh, Honolulu office of the Army Corps of Engineers as well. And uh, as a consequence, uh, we've been able to persuade the Army Corps to uh, Army Corps of Engineers to embark on on uh, on this study, um, perhaps um, yeah. And and if I could just add, um, one of the uh, the projects that we were extremely excited to um, uh, hear that uh, Governor Leon Guerrero requested was for the court to do an assessment of the flood um, the flood zones in the area, the, the uh, uh, hydraulic and hydrological assessments using uh, this thing called two dimensional modeling. Uh, that would then give us an accurate picture of what the true uh, flood um, probabilities are. And so when the governor asked the court to do this, we were excited because we knew that there were a couple of things that happened um, in the, you know, the 35 years that passed. Um, and those include the bridge improvement projects. That's the bridge by Bank of Guam and also the Marine Corps, uh, Marine Corps Drive Bridge. Mm-hmm. And so those... Um, when FEMA established the firm maps in 2009, I believe, the bridge construction happened after the firm maps were established. So there was some thinking that uh, perhaps the bridge improvements could help with the flow of the river and the conveyance of the water and therefore reducing uh, flood, um, uh, the, the flood uh, footprint. Yeah, basically this is the idea was, um, you know, given the um, immense cost and time involved in doing a comprehensive study, 
uh, the governor pushed for um, a more reachable study, which was to examine the impact of construction in the area since the, uh, since the 70s and see how that can modify the floodplain. Uh, but I, I think based on, on that strong stand and, and pushing for that in Marina study, I think it led to the, um, contributed to the Army Corps engineers re, uh, helping to realize a greater opportunity to do the full comprehensive study, uh, which uh, is estimated to cost $3 million, entirely borne by, uh, by the federal government. And yeah. uh, which was a, I, it, it, you know, in my years of public service, um, uh, Edwin, that, that is, it is quite a remarkable achievement uh, to do that, to, to get them to uh, fund something like this for, at that scale. Absolutely. And what, what you essentially did was create enough energy and focus on the Haganya area so that way the message was clear to the Corps that this was uh, an issue and a project that the governor of Guam was still interested in. And the nexus there, the key is that this is an authorized project under the Water Resource Development Act. Um, it was authorized originally in 1986, and deauthorized for various reasons that um, the project was never constructed, and then reauthorized. No, not the least of which was the cost, the, the cost of actually doing this and uh, in doing the initial studies. So I, I would think that contributed to it. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, there an opportunity came up with um, um, with um, uh, an, another uh, federal appropriation for which. Uh, the Army Corps engineers um, uh, uh, figured out that they could be tapped in order to fund the study, um, and which is an estimated cost of $3 million and it would take about three years to do. Um, and uh, we, we, we sort of got the okay from this late last year, but there were a few uh, steps that had, that had to go through the federal bureaucracy. And so we really we got the formal announcement of it in March. At a press conference, I, I would say one of the last pre public press conferences held by the government of Guam before the COVID-19 restrictions were, were imposed, in which um, a representative for the from the U.S. Army Corps Engineers, the head of the Honolulu office, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn, came out, and signed the agreement with uh, the government of Guam, um, and we're officially going to officially listed as the as the sponsor of this project. Um, although, as I said, all the uh, the funding for it are um, is coming from the federal end. Um, uh, perhaps, um, Edwin, maybe just sketch out um, what, what are the uh, parameters or, or what sort of things, uh, for those unfamiliar with these kind of studies, that they're, they're actually likely to do uh, over this next uh, three years in this, this extensive $3 million study. Okay, so um, one of the first things that, that, hap that has to happen is that uh, they had to send out a, um, a, a uh, project development team out to the island to really look at what the uh, the risk and strategies uh, and develop strategies to manage those risks are. And so these are speaking to the core eternal, internal processes. Um, but I would imagine that, you know, they would have to understand and, um, you know, identify what are the different uh, current threats, what are the vulnerabilities in the, in the, um, you know, in the landscape. And so looking at, you know, what's the, uh, the development footprint, the change in geology, the you know different things like climate change, uh, increase in, in sea level rise. So all those different factors, um, the you know, the conditions have changed, and so therefore the different risk in these projects have changed, and the strategies to manage those risks have changed. So they had to come out and really provide that initial assessment to, in order for them to um, really try to meet their their first major milestone, which is to affirm the preliminary interest in federal interest which and was done last last week 
and, which was uh, done uh, last week. We finally got the letter that the court it, it was was able to determine a uh, federal interest. Now, this was a little bit um, kind of, we were a little bit nervous about this because, like you mentioned, there was no historical record of flooding caused by the river or, or flooding around the river. And in the federal interest, they have what's called this benefit-cost ratio mm-hmm. that um, they have to apply. There's this econ- uh, economics to it. I, I, I don't know. B- basically, it's a, it's a complicated form to, to determine whether it's in the economic interest of the nation as yeah. opposed to individual communities or, or, res- or respective uh, 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 problems. So, therefore, that's how they justify investing the nation's uh, financial resources into it. Uh, yeah. So, go, go ahead, Dan. Uh, so, so, when you know, we were saying there's no flooding um, in the river, that was a little, um, we were kind of uh, nervous about that because whenever you add a zero to a ratio, it, it drops that number down. Um, mm-hmm. But what I must say is that the, the project development team uh, did an outstanding job of just creating a picture of what the value of the city is and the potential and the importance of the city uh, to the nation. And we were um, very pleased that the um, district leadership uh, then um, you know, made a decision right there on that call that there is an interest, federal interest, and congratulated the team and, of course, uh, the government of Guam for um, reaching that milestone, which was certainly very, uh, for, very major for the project to continue. If we didn't meet that milestone, then the project would have been, would have been terminated. Right, but we're past that milestone, and we're on our way for the next. Though they're very lengthy, like I said, expensive uh, study here. So what? Uh, they'll, they'll be doing hydrology studies. There'll be assessment of, of land use and impacts on of climate change. Uh, what is the what other th- things will they be examined? They'll be looking at too. I'm sorry, what again? Uh, green infrastructure. Green infrastructure. One of the fantastic things about working with the cores that we're able to. Um, be a part of a, a holistic approach that looks at not just the built infrastructure, but to make sure that natural infrastructure and uh, green infrastructure has uh, been fully examined and applied and implemented where practical. Yeah, one of the interesting things when achieving that first milestone that came up on a, um, a conference call for which Edwin and I were on with uh, U.S. Army Corps offices, like at least four or five, uh, dealing with all aspects of the issues, including uh, cultural resources and environmental impacts, et cetera, in order to come with that determination uh, and that we can move, that we, we have achieved that milestone and can move forward here. That, that's how comprehensive and holistic the, the whole thing is. And so uh, we're, we're very much looking forward to it here. Uh, there is a, um, um, it is, I have to understand, is that this is, a lot of this is very key for any planned uh, extensive uh, revitalization and restoration in Agatna. Even the uh, uh, the sort of draft Agatna master plan, which is in circulation, uh, calls on doing this sort of study in order to establish the feasibility of some of the projects that are are uh, proposed in the draft Agatna master plan, such as the River Walk, for example. Right. Uh, because this will factor in its feasibility. You know, I mean, there's always an a, a, a an engineering solution to any problem. There, it just yeah, if you have if all the money in the world, if right? you have all the money in the world. So a lot of you have to fee- assess in these feasibility studies is not only that theoretically can be done, but if it's financially worthwhile to do it here, or it's just you know, yeah. and, and that's why the this, this sort of studies is sort of important. Um, in, in moving forward here, Edwin, what do you, what what's the next thing we expect to see? It's not as if a, um, it, it's um, it's not um, um, like a, like a, a simple step here. What what if from the Army Corps engineers' task? What is their next uh, task ahead of them? You think? So the the point we got to get to what's known as a tentatively selected plan milestone, mm-hmm. and that um, before we get there, we have to 
really weed out all the different measures that we plan on taking. And so, for example, you know, like you mentioned, there's so many different options. Everyone, um, you know, you can have different ideas on um, designs and other ideas to solve the flooding. But some of the measures that were mentioned that we have to really work through and develop strategies to, um, you know, make sure that we're uh, using an optimal mix of things are, you know, there, there are some of the measures are flood, you know, flood, uh, you know, rezoning. So you're trying to accomplish flood control through through stricter zoning, which nobody wants to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, flood, uh, doing a flood warning system, property buyouts, flood proofing, elevating structures, vegetation management. So those, those are some of the non-structural measures. Some of the structural measures consist of a detention basin or a detention reservoir, or even a bypass structure, maybe even pumping, uh, pumping the water out, mm-hmm. widening or deepening or channelizing the river, putting in levees, flood walls, um, using uh, con- concrete china, uh, channel lining, and what's known as a ring wall berms. So what's a, are, okay, you got you got to help me with this one. What, explain maybe explain to the listeners what a ring wall berm is, just so they can better visualize. I probably need to try to Google. As I'm <laughs> reading off a list here of what are some of the options that uh, the measures that the, the core has, you know, initially proposed. Right. But all of those things would you'll need to take into consideration engineering designs, um, you know, and and how the how, how that would uh, contribute to the flow or attenuation of water. And so by commissioning an engineer, they would need some focus so that way they're not just, you know, trying to um, design something that, um, you know, may not be have the desired outcome. Right. Well, so you have a team of engineers from Honolulu and Sacramento and all across the nation working on this project, and and all of that takes coordination and timing and time and, and focus. So there's quite a bit of effort that goes into ensure that um, everyone's working on this uh, based on their their, um, their schedule, uh, the, the schedule of the court before within that project development team. And based on the uh, the established schedule for which um, the uh, Colonel Sanborn from the Army Corps Engineers has written Governor Lynn Grell just to memorialize it, uh, this... Uh, uh, tentative plan milestone is going to take about a year. So we expect to reach that milestone by June of next year in uh, what is going to be a, a two or three year project to actually complete the study at the cost of, uh, of $3 million. But it's, um, it, it, I, I, I take a great deal of comfort, uh, Edwin, uh, listing the, the, the details of or the specific a- jobs, uh, task ahead of us, even though they're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of numerous. It, it speaks to, to dealing uh, with this in a thorough um, database fashion uh, for a, for something that oh my god people have complained about for decades you know and has been a source of frustration and you know and uh, for those who want to try to do an expanded development again particularly near the river has been a source of great expense um, and to um, but more importantly of uh, resolving this issue is is the fact that it will uh, more than anything else on a substantial basis advance the uh, ideal we all hold and the goal we all share for a, uh, a sensible, responsible um, um, uh, revitalization and restoration of, of Agatna. Um, yep. it, 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 it will actually uh, resolve a lot of these issues. needs a found foundation to do so here. Uh, I think that, um, you know, and in ter- and, and thinking back as to how we sort of arrived at this point in the, in the beginning and this year here, I am, uh, although I, I don't like to put words in the, the mouth of the Army Corps engineers people, but uh, we were also very fortunate that they realized this opportunity uh, to actually do this usual federal funding. But I think a good deal has to do with uh, 
on a number of factors, including Governor Leonardo's uh, leadership and and the professional reputation that you have developed with the Army Corps engineers over time. And so with that, they knew that moving forward in this expensive and complicated process, they had uh, a local partner in the government of Guam that was fully engaged in this and fully prepared uh, to work with them to uh, reach a goal which uh, which we all share. I, I, I think that has a lot to do with it as to why uh, after 40 years, we finally arrived at uh, at a uh, uh, at, at a at a strategy or a sound basis to actually do this. And and whenever you you are able to develop those partnerships, particularly in these times of scarce resources, uh, that's something everyone benefits for. I, I think you know as much as the Ganya floodplain has uh, sort of bedeviled us for like 40 years, uh, it's been as you examine the history, but on the plate of the Army Corps engineers for 40 years. And I'm sure they're anxious to like get this thing resolved as well. Um, but and knowing that they have a um, an engaged, prepared partner to, in order to do this, I think I thought um, uh, persuaded them uh, substantially to uh, um, work to realize this opportunity. And I think that uh, well, thanks for acknowledging the hard work that me and my team have been doing. And I think that a part of what makes this um, effective and efficient is that we're really just following what the Bureau of Planning's role is. This is a capital improvements plan, and part of the bureau's function is to harmonize planning. And uh, you know, so once we, you know, started to show, you know, show up to work and actually really focus on that one key element of, of aligning planning functions, it becomes a natural fit for what we what we do uh, and what we're what we're built to do internally. Um, so you know, it's, I think a great a great example of what the bureau planning uh, can can achieve by holding these things together. Um, so that way, you know, we can bring the key people uh, uh, into the room, build that trust, and build that long-term partnership until the project is completed. And, and leverage resources in order to achieve uh, mutual goals. And Absolutely. they take time, and they take attention, but uh, um, I, I think they, they, uh, they, bear, they bear fruit here, uh, uh, particularly when it's at the top levels in the, in the person of Governor Leon Guerrero, who has... Spent, you know, it only been in office for probably slightly a year and a half, and even before the COVID nineteen crisis, uh, her big focus has been some of these flooding issues, not only at Canyon River, uh, but also in the Barcenas area, and also uh, Umatic and in Santa Rita and in Petey and uh, Barragata. And Edwin, and I know this because we've been subject to her directives to go find solutions for these problems, and it's still uh, on our plate, and we're still working on it. And as as a matter of fact, we have a couple solutions uh, to uh, problems down south, but. Uh, unfortunately, not the time uh, in, in the segment to go through with it, and probably in a future program. Uh, yep. I'll have Edwin back, and he, he can uh, update us um, uh, with that in the future. Now, I've explained this in previous shows, but the uh, Coastal Zone Management Program is a 100% federally funded program under the Bureau and does a broad range of responsibilities, including uh, uh, things that are, are, are very publicized in the International Coastal Cleanup, but even stuff that is less uh, known to the public, like federal consistency review of, of, of a project to see that they comply with federal and local laws. Uh, and also, uh, it is uh, the uh, a key uh, land use planning uh, component of the government of Guam. There are land management agencies, uh, like, uh, um, like the Department of Land Management and those who have substantial inventory of land, like the Ancestral Lands Commission and the Tremont Land Trust Commission. But land use planning centers on the Bureau of Statistics and Plans, and in, in the Bureau centers on the Guam Coastal Zone Management Program. And uh, uh, so aside from this, Edwin has a lot on his plate. So Edwin, thank you for time for taking, thank you for taking time out tonight to come in and uh, help bring the listeners up to speed as to the, the progress that is being made on the Ganyan River study. 
Oh, yeah, you're welcome. So thank you for having me on the show again, and thank you again for your wonderful leadership at the Bureau Planning. Oh, thanks a lot. Anyway, we're heading to the top of the hour for the, uh, the uh, radio news. Uh, after that, we'll have Dr. Austin Shelton from the uh, UOG Center for Island Sustainability. I'll see you guys on the other side. News Talk K57, radio that makes you think. And welcome back to the Data Hub with Tyrone Titano. I'm Tyrone Titano, and we're here broadcast on News Talk K57, simulcast on Docomo Channel 2 and GTA Channel 3. And uh, in the first block, we uh, were discussing with Edwin Rages the uh, plans to uh, try and resolve the issue of the Ganyan River and the Ganyan River floodplain. And for this block, we're going to be discussing with Dr. Austin Shelton from the UOG uh, Center, uh, um, Center for Island Sustainability on the recent um, Island Sustainability Conference, which has just completed its final session uh, last Friday. It was originally going to be a, an actual physical session because of the COVID-19 restrictions made to a virtual session that uh, lasted uh, um, once a week for uh, seven weeks and was completed last, uh, just last Friday, as I said. And joining us with us now is Dr. Austin Shelton uh, from the University of Guam. Austin, are you there? I'm here. Good evening. Oh, Thanks good for evening. having me, Tyrone. Oh, it's a great, great to have you uh, on the air to go over, uh, or to do a wrap-up as to um, uh, your seven-week uh, sojourn uh, in virtual conferencing here. It's, it's something that's of interest to, to a number of us. Hopefully, we won't have these same restrictions uh, going into the next year, or we'll have to reimpose them. But as you know, um, the Bureau of Statistical Plans, like a lot of other agencies, has um, has uh, have uh, have their own array of conferences to uh, plan out, and we're already doing the planning for uh, next year's um, Assembly of Planner Symposium, uh, which mm-hmm. will be in uh, yeah, that's in, a great one. Yeah, and it's, it'll be in February of last year. This year's once, fortunately, you know, luck of the draw. You know, the, the planning gods uh, uh, looking down on us was uh, done in February, bef- uh, just right before, and maybe the last government conference that was held. Right before the uh, the state uh, state of public health emergency was declared, uh, but kudos to you, Austin, and your team for not letting the the COVID nineteen get you down and coming with the innovation of a uh, of a virtual conference, which I understand was very successful. Yes, thank you very much. Well, I have to say uh, thank you to our conference co chairs, the University of Guam President Thomas Price and Governor of Guam Lulian Guerrero for um, uh, co chairing it, but also. Um, they're making the decision that they weren't going to just completely cancel it. Um, before the, the pandemic hit Guam, they actually made the decision that we're going to need to shift from the in-person conference and made that, um, that said that sustainability is more important than ever, so we must um, still have something. So we needed to figure out um, a virtual platform. And, uh, and I think, uh, like, perhaps like me, Tyrone, if you get tired from Zoom meetings all day mm-hmm. at your desk, it's, it gets kind of draining. So we knew that we couldn't make the conference um, three or four days straight in front of a computer on Zoom. So uh, we decided to shift it to a weekly conference series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we did a, a seven straight weeks every Friday for an hour and a half, 9 o'clock to 10.30 a.m., and uh, we turned it into a truly global conference, which was a, a great opportunity for us. There was a lot of people who were planning to come be with us here in Guam for the conference, but um, 
there were some that never would have been able to make it here this year anyway, so we decided to, to try to reach um, a really diverse set of speakers, and we had people from uh, all over the world, from here in the Pacific, from the Caribbean, um, islands even like the, uh, Great Britain. Um, and we had a, a speaker from Geneva who stayed up until 1, one o'clock a.m. her time to make sure she was on our conference to share about the island innovations that her team was doing around the world. Well, the bars are probably closed in Geneva anyway, so she hadn't done anything else to do with one of them. But actually, it did occur to me in, in watching the series here, because as you know, Austin, uh, there, there are a number of levels of goals for when these conferences are held. There are not only the inter- interchange of, uh, of from people for which the physical location or physical doing is always helpful. It's not only to uh, access um, expertise that's, that people don't uh, come across, or to give people the opportunity to present uh, what their what their findings on one issue and another here. But it's also uh, meant to also uh, elevate and build awareness uh, on 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 the core issues for which that conference is meant to address. And you know, in, in some respect, although I, I, I think if I would refer to more physical conferences that have been practical, but by spacing this out over seven weeks, I think uh, one benefit of it was it really um, helped raise awareness of, of sustainability and sustaining issues, having this go over like, oh, like um, over a month and a half. You know, that, that if you had a, a two- or three-day conference in one, uh, in, in one uh, short period here, it might not have the, the, the larger range promotional impact. It would still have a major impact, but you know what I mean? The promotional impact by making this a television series was, uh, was I, I think, uh, extremely beneficial and helpful for the addressing the issue of sustainability. Uh, yes, very true. We had to. Uh, th- that was one of the the benefits that we thought would come out of uh, switching to a virtual um, uh, platform. That uh, at least we'd we'd get more opportunities uh, to engage a, a broader audience, and that, that's truly what happened. Uh, we, we usually have about 300 people that uh, show up in the room in the in-person conference um, from just a handful of different places. They'll come from um, Hawaii and some from the mainland. Uh, a few other islands throughout Micronesia, but um, what we were able to um, to bring in for the virtual conference series over seven weeks was uh, more than 2,000 direct participants on wow. Zoom, uh, and perhaps 14, we'll, we'll get the final numbers uh, this week, but 14 to 15,000 people were watching also on Facebook Live, mm-hmm. uh, and then our, and the recordings that uh, were showing up on YouTube later. And these were people from 75 countries, states, and territories. Um, and so it was a huge impact, I think, um, and a huge engagement that I hope a lot more people are aware that Guam is uh, actively working in the areas of sustainability, and we're trying to bring people together around this concept of, um, of Guam green growth and uh, sustainability, uh, not just in the area of the environment, but also um, uh, social uh, empowerment and uh, economic um, empowerment and uh, cultural creativity. There's so many other aspects um, to sustainable uh, development, and uh, we've, we've talked about this before in the context of the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And, and uh, also the the work that uh, and the issue of sustainability, particularly dealing with green economy and circular economy um, development and jobs is even of more pivotal importance now because part of the uh, governor's uh, recovery strategy uh, from the impact of COVID-19 is not only uh, rebuilding the tourism industry, but also diversifying and expanding to other areas, including green economy and circular economy jobs, in which case uh, I I think to the extent that uh, 
uh, your conference address this year, I think, helped uh, move that uh, awareness along, which is, uh, I think, very important. Yeah, we were so happy to have the, the governor on. She, she actually um, spent maybe two out of the seven weeks she had a presentation. So week one to open the conference as the, the conference co-chair. And also in week six when it was uh, the topic was uh, women business leaders, sustainability solutionaries, mm-hmm. she gave another speech um, both about um, green economic growth opportunities. So um, she and the, the lieutenant governor um, put together that uh, executive order uh, last year to create the Guam Green Growth Working Group, and we've mm-hmm. convened over um, 80 leaders from government, academia, private sector, nonprofits that are um, are, are still working together to finalize this uh, Green Growth Action Framework. But uh, we, we didn't expect when we were starting that, that the world would change and um, uh, having economic opportunities that we can control on our own outside of just uh, tourism and mm-hmm. military and government spending what is something that we can do to create green economic opportunities and I'm really happy that uh, the governor was able to talk about the importance uh, and uh, and the new opportunities that we're seeing in this green growth area with uh, the circular economy and a few other innovations. Well, you know, Austin, I didn't mean to jump around in in topics and and, and mention things like circular economy. One of the major goals of having you on is to give you a chance to do a wrap-up. So maybe uh, the best way to approach it here is just to let you um, go over the, the seven weeks and like uh, what the focus was and what the highlights were uh, from what the um, from what that uh, uh, event was as we as we're going through the uh, entire conference uh, agenda. Yeah, uh, sure. Before uh, you know, we get we lay out all of uh, the different weeks. I just want to mention that uh, we have our, our highlights of the whole conference. There's like a one pager plus the entire uh, recordings uh, up on the UOG website. So mm-hmm. UOG.edu slash CIS2020, that's the conference website. And so if you want to get um, more in-depth into these topics, uh, please uh, visit that website, or please call up the show here, and I'm glad to answer more specific questions. Thank, um, thanks for reminding me, uh, Austin. The, we are, the phone lines are open uh, at 477-5757. That's 477-5757. If you want to call in with a question or a comment, we have Dr. Austin Shelton from the Center on Sustainability. So if you have a question or concern about their islands features and a sustainable future please please join the conversation so go ahead austin go go down the conference agenda sure thanks the uh, the overall conference theme was island wisdom for a global future so we know we have lessons um in our island society uh, how, how our, our our societies used to be sustainable here in islands and something um shifted something changed around world war ii and we became uh, dependent on imports uh, and, um, and outside resources in order to uh, sustain our society. So now we import over 90% of our goods. Uh, you know, back to that circular economy uh, idea, we, we now just dig massive holes in the ground for and fill up the trash. And um, before we know it, we're going to be running out of space, but it's really expensive to manage our waste. And we're importing uh, 90% of everything we use. So we need to start shifting uh, back to some of these um, these island wisdom ideas and figure out what we could what lessons we could take from our past to sustainable societies, blend it with modern innovations and bring us toward uh, the sustainable future. So that that was the overall um, theme that uh, that went across these seven weeks. But the first week we started off with a, a message from our conference co-chairs that I mentioned is um, EOG President Thomas Christ and Governor Julian Guerrero. 
Uh, they spoke for for the first half of that week one, and then we had a really interesting panel from the Local 2030 Islands Network. Now, this is a new network that um, Guam has recently joined. Uh, this was last year at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. Um, Lieutenant Governor Joshua Tenorio um, was there to put Guam um, at the forefront of uh, island sustainability movements. And so we are now working together with uh, several other islands like uh, Grenada, um, Hawaii, um, even big islands like Ireland, um, some of our our regional um, island neighbors here like uh, the Republic of the Marshall Islands and FSM are part of this uh, movement called Local 2030 Islands Network. And um, the sustainable development goals that I mentioned earlier that were adopted by all the UN member states are supposed to bring our world to a more prosperous, sustainable, and equitable future by 2030. That's the deadline. Mm -hmm. So the United Nations realized that they're not going to get to um, that goal unless there is local action. So we're taking local action by 2030 to achieve those UN Sustainable Development Goals, and our network is focused uh, just on the islands and the special lessons that islands have to share with the rest of the world. So we had uh, somebody from Grenada, Hawaii, the UN Foundation, the Lieutenant Governor, and also the Executive Director of the Global Island Partnership on that first panel to share some of the innovations that islands are taking and how they're responding to uh, things like our current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So those were really interesting lessons from um, from the islands. And there was a, a bunch of takeaways that I invite you to check out on the website, too. But we were really pleased that uh, four, over 400 people showed up for that first one and really got us moving. And, uh, and, and for, the, an, for an international meeting, basically, yeah. Yeah. And then the, the second week, uh, this was back in uh, May 8th now, we had uh, the owner of Tetris. Um, mm. yeah, the guy who who, uh, who brought Tetris to the world, his name is Hank Rogers. He's a, a serial entrepreneur, as he describes himself. Uh, but a little later in life, he realized that uh, the biggest threat to our existence here on Earth is climate change. And um, he decided that it was going to be his life's mission to uh, be a champion of clean energy. And so he took uh, Hawaii uh, on this journey and be, became the first state or the first um, government to commit to 100% renewable energy by the year 2045. Mm. And uh, we, we followed suit uh, adopting that same policy here in Guam in, in November. Um, the 35th Guam legislature uh, passed, that in, uh, passed that bill and the governor uh, signed it. And the co-authors co were Senator Amanda Shelton and Clint Rogel. And I think everybody came on as a co-sponsor shortly after, but we are now part of this Blue Planet Alliance that Hank Rogers talked about, which is committing to that 100% renewable energy by 2045. And we're really excited that Hank showed up. Um, he's, he's really a, a big deal, you know, a multimillionaire. Mm -hmm. He's doing uh, huge projects like um, creating a, a moon-based alliance, getting people ready to, to go to space and live on the moon. Uh, and uh, doing a whole bunch of uh, different really innovative things. They took the time yeah. to join us for, with the, for the conference. Uh, he was yeah. And on top of all that, he was the guy who person. came up with Tetris. I mean, that's, let, let's not forget that one. That's the coolest one of all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been with him to a couple of meetings now. I've been on the panel with him in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho last year, and he, he really wears a, a Tetris suit. Mm. He's a really cool guy. <laughs> 
And uh, so we had him. Uh, he had a lot of really great ideas ta- uh, shared about um, uh, one of his uh, companies called Blue Planet Energy. So you, you might have heard of the Tesla wall battery that you can have solar storage um, in your home. Uh, Blue Planet Energy has a, a different type of technology. It's very good battery technology, a, a lot less uh, flammable, combustible, uh, um, a, a very safe product. And so they're using that now in places like Puerto Rico, and they're um, using it to create more resilient um, solar infrastructure. Mm. So um, we're, we're actually trying to look at a project like this for Guam now with um, partners like Blue Planet Energy and, and uh, Arizona State University's Global Institute of Sustainability. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what would you power with it? Uh, battery storage in schools, mm. um, you know, around um, our, our typhoon um, shelters so that these places are up and running immediately after a storm, even if the, the power is off on the rest of the island. Or during a storm, you know, uh, as the power yeah, gets cut out. Yeah. Uh, so that was, day, that was session two? That was uh, session two, Hank Rogers, Tetris right. entrepreneur and uh, champion of clean energy. Okay, and, se- and the session three was, I guess, May 15th? That's correct, May 15th, and we had... Uh, the, the title was Island Wisdom, Looping Back to the Circular Economy. And uh, on a, a previous session here on your show, I shared a little bit about this one, um, but we started off with uh, the, the global thought leader of the circular economy, and this was um, the, exec, the executive director of, or actually the CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. They're the big name in the circular economy space, uh, sharing how this is... Uh, is this MacArthur Foundation? That's the one who dollar opportunity. Right. And the whole world transitions to it. MacArthur Foundation is that the one who puts out the Genius Awards? Yes, I think oh, that's yes. The, the same organization that 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 um, puts it out. Um, so it's uh, it was started by uh, uh, Ellen MacArthur, Dean uh, Dean Ellen MacArthur, mm-hmm. and um, she was sailing around the world on a solo vessel, and she decided that. Um, Something had to be done um, about all these industries and all the waste that we have in the world. And she learned how to be really self-sustainable in this little vessel and decided she had to do something big. And so it's this concept of the, of the circular economy. Um, I've shared before that the linear economy is the economic model that um, almost all of us are in. You take something from the earth, you make something out of it, uh, you use it then you throw it away, and you start all over again. It's a straight line. Just take, make, and waste. In our case, we, we bury in the ground in the landfill at a, at a substantial cost of the taxpayers. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's really expensive to um, the, the end product, which uh, ends up in that, that landfill, fills up um, millions of dollars um, in cost to the, the, the taxpayers. So how can we start looking at that waste as a resource instead of something to just be thrown away or buried? And that's uh, where the circular economy comes in. You design out waste and pollution, um, and you keep materials in use, and you regenerate natural systems. So there are big uh, companies out there now that are really um, investing in the circular economy. Things like uh, companies like Apple and 3M, um, Philips, for example. Um, Dow Chemical. How this would look for like oh yeah, Dow Chemical. Um, a place like uh, Philips, you know, who makes things like light bulbs, um, they they change this model for for light. So they have contracts with uh, places like airports, 
mm-hmm. and they don't sell light bulbs to airports anymore. They now sell light. And so if they're just selling, the airport is now just paying for light and not light bulbs. Uh, Philips doesn't have an incentive to make the light bulbs burn out anymore because mm-hmm. they're not going to make money by selling a, a new light bulb. If they can keep the lights running as long as possible, um, that's a way to circularize something, mm-hmm. that you're keeping these materials in use. Um, and so that, that's, that's a different model. Leasing is a type of a circular economy model. Um, and then you can also make uh, things like the Herman Miller chair. That's another big popular one out there. Um, how do you keep these um, materials in use that break down into components and you remake um, another chair once uh, one gets worn out? Uh, but those are big concepts for, for huge industries. But, the, but we like to, to talk about the opportunities for island circular economy industries. Uh, now we're, we're partnering with um, GITA. Uh, and hopefully um, uh, EPA and, and you at BSP soon to, mm-hmm. to really launch some new um, local initiatives. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, the, the example that I often use is green banana paper in Koshrai, Micronesia, mm-hmm. where they took discarded banana trees, blended them up into a pulp, and then created paper, and um, are now selling these wallets that they market as vegan leather mm-hmm. all over the world. So they, they now have... My, my uh, wife wants one of those. 25 employees. Yeah, um, but uh, and actually, uh, returning to uh, what, what's happening here on Guam, there are a number of initiatives uh, being launched by the uh, under Zero Waste under that's being supervised by the Zero Waste Working Group, chaired by First Gentleman Jeff Cook. Uh, one of them is okay. a, a compost unit. You're familiar with the one down at the Recycling Enterprise Zone of the Commercial Port, and the, the, what they've been testing here is is a use of the uh, biosolids produced by the uh, Guam Waterworks waste treatment plants as sort of a cakey substance and creating compost heaps, eventually turning into potting soil uh, for use um, yeah, by landscapers and, uh, and uh, also for um, forestry projects by the Department of Agriculture and probably possibly even for home gardening here. But part of the thinking is, is that once we, um, uh, and they're, they're going through uh, the demonstration market to prove out the uh, the purity and safety of the process, which is, by the way, not it, it, they're not really reinventing the wheel. This gets done all, all across the country. Um, mm-hmm. But if, if, if the Guam Water expends like a million and a half to pay the, uh, uh, for dumping their biosolids in the landfill, if uh, we can find a cheaper way uh, that to dispose of it by, by, uh, by through the composting process and turning into resources here, I mean, that's the whole concept of time zero waste, which is to take waste and convert it into resources to fuel a green economy and create more private sector jobs that way. So if the, uh, they're now proving out the model, and all the early data is, 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 um, is very promising and very encouraging here. But the idea is to set up a system whereby instead of burying the bowls that biosolids in the ground, which are, are going to grow, and thereby helping boosting water rates because you have to pay to bury them in the ground, instead uh, pay less uh, to help support this composting operation that will take that waste and convert it to something safe that can be reused for the benefit of, uh, of the community here. They're also, um, under the Green Roadways Project, examining another, uh, 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 they're looking at waste to divert from the landfill. And one of them is, is for example, um, pulverized glass. And there is already discussions with the Department of Public Works to uh, identify a tertiary road in Dededo, uh by use as a demonstration product to use the glass as, as a bedding and then you do the asphalt over it. And if you do that, you help save money for uh, public works, and you divert um, the, the, the glass from the landfill, therefore extending the, way, the life of the landfill, therefore, therefore uh, also um, uh, you know, uh, saving t- uh, money for the taxpayers. 
And so there are a number of uh, initiatives that are being geared up to this one as well. Um, the first gentleman also wanted us to examine, or the Zero was going to examine the whole idea of plastics and how to, to uh, get plastics. Uh, and, and there are machines that were for some types of plastics you can melt and reuse it to produce new products. We saw some evidence, I believe, at the uh, Sustainably Conference last year. And I mean, people were, loved those plastic, those benches that were made with reused plastics. Um, and see if we can do that here to create uh, small business opportunities and, and local jobs as well for people. So yeah, right. you're, you're, you're really uh, hitting both uh, big approaches um, right there, Tyrone, that you can do it from uh, a larger government initiative or taking biosolids mm -hmm. from um, the waste uh, treatment plants. Um, and then you could also look at it from a, an entrepreneurial level. Mm -hmm. uh, can somebody find a solution for... Um, plastic waste and start creating marketable products, mm -hmm. um, whether it be benches or trinkets or uh, widgets that can go into to some type of uh, machine and, and, and have um, a really uh, important use. Um, but I think uh, you know, something that Larry Gast, the um, Guam Solid Waste Administrator, often says is that it, it costs us about, uh, I think it's $150 per ton, or to landfill one ton of waste, $150. But uh, some months it can be 600 to mm. over $1,000 per ton to ship off uh, plastic waste mm. to Indonesia, where that, that's where it was getting uh, recycled for us before the pandemic. So if you can find um, that gap between $150 and uh, $600 or $1,000, and you can create um, an industry here in Guam to save Guam solid waste uh, and the um, the customers of GSWA money on the cost of shipping off that, that recyclables and do something here, that would be a huge benefit to the island. And yeah. not to mention all the carbon and emissions that you're saving um, from not having to ship it off island anymore. And create more private sector jobs, which has become of increased importance now since uh, so many people, unfortunately, in the retail and the tourist trade have lost their jobs because of the consequences of the impact of the COVID-19. Uh, but, you know, there's an expansive agenda f um, ahead on, on, on that issue, but, uh, for, and still a lot of work to be done, but there's, as evidenced by, um, uh, by Austin's uh, comments, a lot of active interest and work uh, to actually make this into a, a reality. Uh, so, Austin, we've gone to, the, like, the first three sessions, I believe. So we're on to the one on May 21st? Uh, May 22nd. And this May 22nd. Is, uh, my, my math is off a, this a time. really interesting one. Yeah, oh, very close. <laughs> um, uh, this one was a, a really um, interesting session. It was our CIS Seed Talks, mm -hmm. our, our Center for Island Sustainability Seed Talks Ideas Worth Cultivating. So very much like TED Talks, mm. which are um, uh, important ideas too, but we had um, a really special network to tap into at, at this time, and it was... Uh, the inaugural cohort of the Obama Leaders Asia Pacific. So there are uh -huh. 200 um, Obama leaders that um, were selected from around Asia Pacific, um, got together in Malaysia in December. Um, and so there's a few of us that are in that from Guam, uh, Julian Uggen, uh, Senator Regine Biscoe-Lee, Kara Flores-Mays from Mihi, and, and myself. And so mm -hmm. we met a whole bunch of great friends, and we asked them, uh, a few of the ones working in sustainability, to join us for the conference and share their seed talk, which is like a TED talk, and, and share some inspirational ideas to um, help other people in the conference get moving. You know, where a lot of us are have been in a funk with uh, being in isolation, so we thought that uh, having an inspirational talk from um, these four um, uh, really 
uh, really fantastic uh, Obama leaders would uh, be inspiring. So I invite you to watch um, these really interesting lessons from a, a planetary health doctor, uh, from a young woman in Indonesia who started her own NGO um, to, to save the, the oceans from plastic uh, pollution. We had somebody working in, um, in, in, in equality issues and uh, youth engagement. And uh, another person who went to um, this, this island called Timor-Leste, uh, off the coast of Australia, set up a carbon offset forest, and uh, also gets uh, local communities to sell their coffee in order to um, to promote economic growth in their area. The really incredible work that they're doing. Uh, and then to, to cap off this session, we have um, uh, Dr. Maya Satoro, who is um, who is in Hawaii, and she runs the she is the co-founder of the Institute for Climate and Peace, and she also uh, happens to be the sister of. Uh, Obama, uh, and uh, she had some really uh, inspiring uh, wisdom to share with us uh, about things like climate issues and uh, the concept of positive peace and how we can really achieve uh, a global future um, by working together in these very important areas. Hmm. And and this is this was the uh, President Obama's sister. Yes, that's uh, yes, Dr. Maya Satoro, a yeah. really inspiring person herself. Yes. Uh, well, given given uh, all that, what is what is aside from the the array of people uh, involved here? What do you think is the major takeaway from that session? Um, that session is, is uh, the major takeaway is really just what is what is possible. What what type of work can um, a few. Um, a few motivated individuals who have um, shared values and shared purpose. Um, and what what can they do when they start bringing uh, like-minded individuals together? They see a problem and, and they really believe that um, we can be the ones today that can make change. Uh, so just just to hear a little bit about each of their stories, um, I think would be enough to um, to inspire anybody who wants to make change here for for our island. Uh, for our region, or to even make global change, these are uh, the types of ideas that you want to listen to, um, and 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 start getting a, a move on it yourself. Well, I asked you the, the question about the major takeaway, Austin, because I, I think that the meth- the message that you articulately uh, uh, described from 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 that session is 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 really important one, particularly um, here on Guam. As you know, Austin, some some of the barriers in in getting people to get uh, interested interested in this the stuff here is one. Um, a degree of cynicism or pessimism, uh, particularly of the ability of, uh, of our community to actually uh, engage in these issues in a serious fashion and actually get something done. And when you consider what, what is actually going on in, on, um, in communities uh, less prosperous than ours, um, and what, what uh, the, get that, that idea of possibility, of that idea that you know, if we work together, we can actually uh, realize and solve some of these problems. I think that is, is uh, I think, one of the important messages from um, your, your entire seven-week conference is is to not only educate people and pass information, but raise in the in people's minds the idea of possibility of what is possible. And I think that's that's extremely valuable. Yeah, very true. Thank you for that. And I will give you one one takeaway from Dr. Satoro, who you know she said that. Really, regardless of, of any status that somebody might have uh, or supposed status, everybody has a role in contributing to um, this concept of, of positive peace uh, and a, a global sustainable future. And everybody has a role to contribute to making our communities more um, resilient. 
And she also spoke a little bit about the values. Um, it, was, it was really an honor. I, I was the one who got to uh, interview her for this moderated mm-hmm. session, and I asked her, um, you, you know, you, we can't um, uh, get away from the fact that you, 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 are, you have been very close to um, a really important leader. She's taught leadership for social change and, and a whole bunch of things at the University of Hawaii. I asked you, being so close to one of the most powerful global leaders of all time, your brother, President Barack Obama, uh, what are some uh, leadership values that uh, you think uh, are important for um, people like us here in the audience to aspire to? And so she said, uh, like the one she, like the value she shares with her, her brother, uh, leadership is, is not about self-promotion or personal achievement. It really should be about building bridges being intergenerational and understanding that we are all connected, and also uh, understanding that um, you have the ability to make change. You know, we are the ones that we are, have been waiting for. That's um, one of uh, President Obama's most famous lines. We are the ones we have been waiting for. So uh, with that, we move on to, I believe, May 29th, that conference. That's correct, May 29th. This was uh, entitled Ancient Winds navigating tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, and so we had the master navigators uh, join us for this session as you recall the conference theme is island wisdom for a global future so we wanted to look back a little bit at the traditional knowledge um, uh, one of uh, the, the navigators that we work with at our EOGC grant program which by the way thank you um, Tyler for being on our advisory board um, and my director of BSP um, Larry Regatel is, is a master navigator from YAP, and I asked him um, once, as a scientist, um, how do I tell my fellow scientists why traditional navigation is still important? Uh, and so Larry said that you have to look behind, in, in navigation, you have to look behind where you're coming from in order to see where you're going. So uh, that fits in really well with our with our theme. We have to look back to our island wisdom in order to find our way to navigate towards that global future. So we had some really um, great insights from Larry Ray Cattell. Uh We had Dr. Vince Diaz, who um, is mm-hmm. from Guam, mm-hmm. um, Pompeian and, and Filipino, and now he's based at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities in a Native American program, and he runs a, a canoe program there. Um, and then uh, we were supposed to have Nainoa Thompson from... Um, Hawaii, the Polynesian Voyaging Society, who um, led the voyage around the world in Hokulea and this Malama Honua um, uh, initiative. Um, but he had a family emergency maybe 15 minutes before the conference, but mm-hmm. he was kind enough to send um, the director of navigation for Polynesian Voyaging Society, uh, Lehua Kamala. And so um, it was really actually nice to have a, a female navigator join us for that session. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to recall if I ever, ever met a female navigator, you know, because it tends to be, uh, tends to have a lot of alpha males out there waiting to brave the ocean, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, one, one that we work with here uh, quite often, I'm sure you've met her, is Sandra Okada. Right, uh, right. She, she's over in uh, the TASA group that we've been um, working with uh, at UOG as well. Well, uh, well, Sandra is a, is a good friend, and when she next sees me, she would probably slap me upside the head for forgetting about her. So, in any event, um, so so, what what was the major takeaway from the, getting the navigators involved? In this, do you think? Uh, well, I think that, that that one point that I mentioned about mm. um, uh, having to see where we're coming from in order to know where we're going, mm. um, but. Uh, 
it, it's actually a, a common theme um, across generations, uh, whether we think about it or not, to apply island wisdom towards our, our collective future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that's been practiced um, for generations in, in all of our different cultures throughout the, the Pacific. Um, and we also need to be thinking about the, the threats or the reality of the threats of globalization and climate change that we're seeing right now. Um, and how we can use some of our island wisdom to, to get through that and to predict um, some of the changes and work together as a community to get through that, mm-hmm. uh, to adapt, to become more resilient. Um, and uh, I, I think Lehua, um was a really good example of, of why this still applies to not only women, but also a, a younger generation of voyagers who are now continuing to perpetuate these values of the traditional navigators and um, she was really inviting the younger generation to, to be inspired and not to lose these cultural values. Which um, is so important another, for any number of reasons, yes. Yeah, another really cool thing that uh, happened, and this might be the first time on Zoom at least uh, that, that we've seen, is that uh, our master navigators had a really special um, traditional ceremony to kick off the conference. Mm. So there was uh, the blowing of the, the kulu, the, the shells, um, you know, and Larry uh, is from the app, so he knew uh, that he had to get special permission in order to present here in Guam, because he's currently on island, and so he had to get his uncle from his mother's side mm-hmm. in order to give him a special blessing uh, to share this uh, very sacred wisdom with everybody who is listening from around the world. Um, so that was really special, and we had the TASA um, seafaring group um, also do a special chant and blessing uh, to start off um, the whole event. Mm, so that was the fifth session, I believe, right? Yeah, very powerful session. Uh, well, one, two, three, that was the fifth one. Okay, so which brings us to the sixth one, which is in June, which was in June, I believe, right? That's right, uh, June 5th. June the 5th. title was Women, Business Leaders, Sustainability Solutionaries. So we had opening remarks by Governor Leon Guerrero, who, um, of course, uh, in previous roles was the president of the Bank of Guam. Uh, she was a founding member, maybe the, the founding president, I'm not sure, of the Guam Women's Chamber of Commerce. Yes. Um, she gave uh, really important remarks about green growth and about resilience and what the economic opportunities we should be looking at today as the world is changing. We also had opening remarks by our um, University of Guam Senior Vice President and Provost, Dr. Anita Enriquez, who um, is also a founding member of the Guam Women's Chamber of Commerce. And both of these um, ladies were introduced by the Dean of the School of Business and Public Administration, Dr. Annette Santos. Mm. And and there was, that, there was the governor's remarks, the the centerpiece of the uh, of the session, or. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, I wouldn't call it the, the centerpiece, it was the opening remarks, but it was a really powerful opening that set the tone for uh, two very remarkable panels that followed. Um, the first was a panel of aggregators, so women that are, are bringing, uh, are, are, who are business leaders that are bringing a whole bunch of other people together in their field. Um, so we had uh, people like uh, Melly James, who runs a, an accelerator in Hawaii, that capitalizes on the brand of Hawaii. You know, a lot of people can sell something with a, um, they can they can name their product with a Hawaiian word, and uh, they're making millions of dollars in a publicly traded company now. So she, and they're not from Hawaii. They don't live there. They're not native Hawaiian. And so now she's working with um, 
local entrepreneurs who are, are making hundreds of thousands of dollars every year and learning how to capitalize on the, the brand and the values of Hawaii. So I thought that was a really interesting example that entrepreneurs here in Guam uh, would also be able to learn from. Uh, and we have an equivalent of a business incubator called Guma, and mm-hmm. that's the people we're working with actually for that circular economy idea. Uh, on that subject here, how is how is what they're doing in Hawaii different from, say, the efforts done for uh, the Guam Products CEO or to create a, um, a Guam trademark uh, statute here, uh, which deals with kind of like the intellectual property of of uh, indigenous, um, um, usually artisans in this case here. How, how How is what they're doing a little different from that concept? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not, not too sure. Uh, we, we didn't talk to their equivalent of, of Gita, so I'm not sure mm-hmm. if they have um, something similar to the um, to the Guam product seal or not, but there's, they actually have uh, uh, a much bigger entrepreneur in- ecosystem in mm-hmm. Hawaii. There's several mm-hmm. business incubators and accelerators, um, so they're really moving in this area. They even have tech accelerators. Um, we're really early in um, this field here in Guam with uh, with our small business development center, with the work that Gita is doing, uh, and with the work that Guam Unique Merchandise and Art is doing. So I'm hoping that um, we'll keep um, bringing people like Nelly to Guam uh, to share some of uh, some ideas and figure out how we can um, stimulate new local industries. Uh, whether it's in the circular economy or, or or some other area, but to really capitalize on that that brand of Guam and what we have to offer um, people around the world. Okay, so that takes us now to the final conference, which is the uh, final uh, session of your ongoing conference, which was just last week, right? Uh, that's correct. So we had uh, two panels last week. Um, this was called Achieving a Sustainable Future Through Capacity Building and Quality Education. Quality education is one of those um, sustainable development goals. Um, but we had a panel of, of capacity builders. We had somebody from uh, Portland State University who's originally from Puerto Rico and now has a large National Institutes of Health grant that connects Guam, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, uh, and other places around biomedical research. Uh, we had somebody from the National Science Foundation grant that we work with um, at the University of the Virgin Islands. And so we have another STEM capacity building initiative that connects Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, and Guam. And we're uh, taking students from middle school, middle school uh, all the way to PhDs to try to, to give them su- successful careers in STEM. Mm-hmm. We'll be uh, in STEM being science, technology, um, here in Guam. STEM being science, technology, engineering, and uh, mathematics. Correct. Yeah, okay. Um, and then the second panel was uh, five university presidents. Mm-hmm. We had uh, President uh, Thomas Price. Uh, we also had the president of the University of the Virgin Islands, David Hall, um, president of the University of Otago in New Zealand, Harleen mm-hmm. uh, Hain. Actually, her title is vice chancellor. That's, what, that's the equivalent title they use for president there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the University of Hawaii president, David Lassner, uh, and also a place that's not an island, but they have the first school of sustainability and the Global Institute of Sustainability. So to give us that real um, global perspective, uh, the president of Arizona State University, Michael Crow, joined us. And he has a student body of something like 120,000 mm. students, and they're the number one most innovative school in the nation ahead of Stanford and MIT. So it was a real honor to have him join us as well and share some of those innovations. Mm. And uh, and what what do you think was the big takeaway from that assemblage of such uh, academic luminaries? 
Uh, I think it's um, one of the messages that we heard is that sustainability is really an, an interdisciplinary field. Mm. Uh, it's not enough just to, to go uh, get a science degree and, and specialize in, in one thing. You have to really broaden your perspective, take as many classes. If you're coming from a, a college perspective, take, your, take as many classes as you can from um, all different areas of the university and diversify. And you have to work with all of these different partners in order to achieve a sustainable future. And we see that again with uh, the 17 sustainable development goals. It's not just about the environment. Um, it's not just about any one of these areas. It has to be approached uh, holistically and, and all together with a whole uh, bunch of different partners. Well, Austin, we're getting down to like the last maybe seven minutes of the program. And even though I've kept you talking for like 42 minutes, and I apologize for that, and I, I, didn't, I don't think he even gave you uh, much of a break, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the remaining time for you to, 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 to whatever comments you want to make in to, to summarize the, um, um, the, the conference as, as, as you see it and uh, where people can, get, um, can view uh, segments of it. Are um, online and um, any other comments you want to make about the um, the future of the of the conference and your work in the Center for Iron Sustainability? Uh, sure. Well, well first I, I want to wrap up that summary again with the the website. You can find it on uog.edu/cis2020. All of the highlights and uh, if you're if you like to go on YouTube, you can check out the UOG Tritons page, and you'll find all of these videos, including those uh, inspiring CISC talks. There, there are individual playlists um, for the whole conference, so lots of content there to go through, and lots of learning um, to do. Um, and so, we we did make one important announcement at the end of our session last week, and it is the dates for our 2021 conference. That is going to be April 5th through the 9th, 2021. And we do not know yet if it can be a, um, an in-person event like we are, we're used to, or it will be virtual again, or some um, type of hybrid event. But we do know that uh, we can um, commit to making it inspirational, um, innovative, and uh, push people to action um, to achieve that sustainable global future. So we're excited for um, whatever that's going to look like next year. Yeah, we're starting the same uh, fix here as we're planning for the uh, uh, the sixth annual Assembly of Planners Symposium, which will be in February, uh, a couple months before yours. We're we're looking we're planning on the basis of both in person or uh, an online uh, or an optional online uh, basis, and then and our task uh, next year is complicated even more so because uh, it will be a joint event with the. Uh, uh, Pacific uh, Risk uh, Management uh, Ohana, or, or otherwise known as Prima, which is an organization of, um, of about a thousand Pacific organizations uh, to on the uh, uh, to build uh, uh, support and uh, and um, and uh, knowledge about resiliency. So uh, that complicates the task further. But you know we're going to have to go where this goes because uh, the uh, the public health emergency is unfortunately not subject to our conference agendas and. Uh, and we'll see how the uh, the governor uh, the governor and their public health advisors and uh, and see what kind of world we are going to look at um, uh, next year. That 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 to me, uh, Austin, is 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 something that's going to shape uh, not only uh, the conference that um, you're spearheading for the Center on Sustainability, but uh, which the bureau and its partners are are spearheading in the Assembly and Planner Symposium. Here is, you know, usually when we do these things, like several months out, we pretty well figure out what we're going to do because the issues tend to be 
consistent, uh, you know, sustainability, the environment, climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as the, as with the, over the next year uh, dealing with um, COVID-19, it adds uh, um, a great deal of uncertainty as to what kind of world are we living in, um, you know, and, and how will we have to adapt. Already we've gone through major adapt- adaptations by, by banning public gatherings. And uh, actually people are getting comfortable in those new arrangements, I, I think, particularly Zoom meetings. So that's all, the world is already changing and uh, how that will, which, which, you know, interestingly here by adapting to Zoom meetings, we're, we're cutting down on the carbon footprint for everybody because they're not driving to meetings <laughs> to do so. Um, but any event, uh, I'm, I'm sure it'll be in as impressive um, uh, at a conference next year as, uh, as this year's one. And again, congratulations not only for, for your success, but, but for, having, um, for having the determination and the sense of innovation of not letting this emergency block this important conference and finding ways to bring this to uh, fruition and, and accessible to, the, to people around the world. So congratulations again, Austin. Thanks very much for that, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to um, all, all the, the things to come. I think the, the most urgent thing that we're going to be working on is um, continuing to advance the Guam Green Growth Initiative. Uh, so we're looking forward to getting together with um, you at BSP as a, as a working group member mm-hmm. um, and all of the different agencies, and we're going to finalize that uh, Guam Green Growth Action Framework mm-hmm. uh, and start uh, addressing each of those sustainable development goals and um, hopefully uh, bringing Guam to that uh, sustainable future. Uh, we're going to get on track for that. Right, and, 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 and perhaps, Austin, just to help me clarify that this is not just environmental sustainability. It's also... The whole concept of whether you have a sustainable community, which means also in areas of uh, of social justice and uh, certain right. of quality. So, so go ahead. Maybe yeah, for example, the n- n- the number one SDG is no poverty. Number two is no hunger. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's things like gender equality, um, quality education, um, ensuring that uh, it doesn't. Not until you get to number fourteen and or thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen do you start getting to the environmental stuff like climate action, life below water, and life on land. Um, there's there's everything else going on um, that we we have to address in order to um, to promote sustainability and actually achieve it. Because the stable so one of the projects. Yep. Go ahead. A stable society is important for stable community. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, one of the projects that I, I think is, is really important for us to, to, to jump on right away is to ensure that um, we're, we're uh, promoting more uh, food security for our islands. So we're, we're seeing really great initiatives with, uh, um, with buying local produce um, and, and handing out some, um, some free meals, which is essential, critical at this time. Um, but we're, we're going to be um, hopefully starting a project through Guam Green Growth um, to create uh, more gardens that are more accessible to people mm-hmm. in the communities, especially to our, our homeless populations, and uh, uh, try to help out through uh, community engagement and, and within that uh, important aspect in our community. Well, fantastic, and I certainly look forward to working with you on, the, this, on these important projects. And with that, um, thank you, Austin, for joining us. We're heading to the top of the hour and the news. Uh, thank you for joining. Thanks uh, very much for having me. Appreciate thanks, it. thanks, Austin. See you, see you soon. Uh, and, and to all of you in the listening audience, thank you for joining me. I'm Tyrone Titano. This has been the Data Hub with Tyrone Titano, and we'll be back here a week from now here on Newstalk K57, simulcast on GTA Channel Three and Docomo Channel Two. Thank you all. See you next week. <laughs>